This will be the third week, and then we'll do one more message out of this passage. But tonight we want to look at the battle for your heart. And we looked at last week the battle for your mind. If you remember one of the earlier messages, I said to you, whenever we talk about the holiness of God, you have to remember we're saying that God is just off the charts. He's over the top. When you think about the holiness of God, God is outside space, God is outside time, God who is pure and loving and all of those wonderful descriptors that we have in the scriptures, we're saying God is unlike anything we could ever dream or imagine. Let me give you an illustration. I'm going to give you two quick illustrations. One is often I will say to somebody, God is like your father. Well, when Jesus taught us to pray, he was the one that gave us that image of father. Now, a lot of people, a lot of people don't have a very good idea of what a dad is. Maybe they grew up with an abusive dad, an absent dad, or a dad that uh, just, you know, was mean to them. So you say God is like, they say, well, I don't want anything to do with that. But Jesus taught us something a little different. He goes, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. In other words, our heavenly Father. We know there's a big difference between fathers on this earth and heavenly fathers, right? So Jesus is teaching us right there that our Father is just off the charts. Our God in heaven is just off the charts. He's a holy God. One of the things that we've talked about in this series is that God applies this word holy to us. And I thought maybe I could bring a newspaper out and illustrate this. The Hebrew word is kadash, where we talk about God being holy, that means God is totally separate. So God separates us, He saves us, and He separates us from this world. So let's say I've been reading this old newspaper. This is uh, Monday's newspaper. Let's just say I've been reading this paper, and I've gotten to something, and I go, oh, wow, there's a good article about free speech. I want to save this article about free speech because I think free speech and freedom of worship, I think those are values that are under attack in America. But I may not remember this article after I read it, so what I do is I take the article and I cut it out of the newspaper. Now, I'm not a very good cutter. That's the reason I like to clip from the internet. So, I have just separated this from the newspaper. I kadashed it. And by kadashing it, what I do, and I'll just throw this away now, and God doesn't throw away the world, but I'll just put that right there for the time being. I take this, and back in the old days when I used paper files all the time, I would pull out my file on the say, freedom of speech or freedom of worship, and I would slide this article in there so that I could use it for a message or sermon or a speech or maybe you're a businessman and you go, hmm, I could use this to talk about, you know, our business and how we transact business and advertising. So you separate it, you Put it aside for special use because that's going to the recycling bin to go to. We're not going to throw it in the garbage can, right? We're going to put it in the recycling bin. That's going to the recycling bin to go somewhere else. But this is being saved. It's been made holy. Does that make sense? So when we talk about being a holy people, God does this for us as he brings us into his family, and that's got a lot to do with our new birth, and I'll get to that in just a few minutes tonight. So stand with me as we try to look at this from another perspective this evening, 
And let's go back to the Scriptures tonight. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13, and I'm sure you've run out, of, if you're using your little uh, uh, journaling Bibles, you've run out of room on that one sheet already, so this is where you just keep stuffing notes inside of it, and you really, you're building your own commentary, you're building your own thoughts on in these little Bibles that we made available to you. So prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the Scripture says, you must be holy because I am holy. And remember that the Heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites. He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you, you must live in reverent fear of Him during your time as temporary residence. For you know, read that with me, for you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. Keep reading. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver which lose her value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. Can we say praise God for that? I mean, that's how you've been redeemed. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days, he's been revealed for your sake. Through Christ, you have come to trust in God and you have placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. Father, in the name of Jesus, I'm asking you, to Lord, to speak to our hearts. And um, tonight especially, Lord, there's this sense in me that's been since early this morning. God, touch us. Words cannot do this, Lord. Move this beyond our heads into our hearts Father, stir us, Lord. Move us, I pray, to greater levels of holiness and fruitfulness, Lord, in you. God, as we move into these last days, I pray that, Jesus, we will shine brighter and brighter and not be fearful, not be afraid, not be scared, Lord, of what's coming in these last days, but instead, our Father in heaven, who has made us holy and adopted us through the blood of your Son, we will be prepared, for it's in Jesus' name I pray. And everyone said, amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Sunday morning, I start a brand new series, and it's just entitled The End. And I hope that you'll bring somebody to, with you to every single one of this. It's going to be a four-week series, and uh, I can't wait to share that with you Sunday. Holiness is a word that... Um, in English language these days, it gets a really bad rap. It gets a terrible rap. As a matter of fact, a lot of times when you say the word holiness, and I, will, I have admitted this many times before, as a young person and a young man, holiness was something that I just kind of shunned away from or shunned that word because I never felt like I could please God. I never felt like I was good enough. And holiness was more about legalism than it was about the relationship. Somehow or another, holiness in our modern-day culture, and especially when I talk to lost people, they will use a phrase like holier than thou, or they'll tend to think that when you're talking about holiness, you're talking about somebody that keeps all the rules, somebody that is a good rule keeper. But holiness... 
Holiness is more of an attitude of our heart. I've often used the illustration, if you want to understand holiness, look at the fruit of the Spirit. That's what the Holy Spirit produces in you. He doesn't produce bickering. He doesn't produce whining. He doesn't produce racism. He doesn't produce uh, gossip. The Holy Spirit produces love and joy and peace. And you go through that list of, of the fruit of the Spirit, you see what a holy life is. Well, holiness, based upon what I've been able to learn over the years from the Scriptures and thinking about this, holiness is basically an attitude of your heart that looks at Jesus and says, use me, use me. That's what holiness, it just looks up to God and says, use me. And growing up, we all, and you put that up on the screen, holiness says to God, use me. Because growing up, we used to sing a chorus all the time that said, use me, Lord, don't refuse me. Surely there's a work that I can do. And in my heart and life, as I begin to understand holiness, I begin to understand that little course that we sang, that actually defined what holiness really was for me. A holy person doesn't just say to God, give me the rules. A holy person says to God, I want to be used by you. Lord, I love you. I want to serve you. Lord, I know I can never save myself by keeping the rules. And that's what, that's what scared me about holiness is because I, I never thought I could be good enough for God. I never thought I could be good enough for the rapture. I never knew when I was pleasing God enough. One of the ladies that I led to the Lord here in the metro area, that was her very basic fear herself. One of the new families in our church Sunday morning talked to me after the second service and says, I grew up with this fear of, of not being able to please God and serve God and, and knowing when he was pleased with me or not. Somebody else wrote me an email this week and says, Pastor, could you please help me understand grace? You said grace is where God gives us what we don't deserve. I really have never understood the grace grace of God. You see, holiness, it transforms your life from a matter of, I'm going to keep the rules, because you can keep the rules in your head. Look at me now. You can keep the rules in your head and not in your heart, and if you do that, you become a hypocrite, and nobody likes a hypocrite. Because if your heart's not in it, let's say, for instance, I say all the right things about racism, but inside, I still hate people of another color. I'm a hypocrite, and eventually that's going to bleed through. Let's say, for instance, that I say to, to, to you, you know, I'm a passionate follower of Jesus, and I keep all the rules. I'm in church. I tithe. I preach. But in my heart, I never worship Him. In my heart, I never bow before Him. Eventually, that begins to leak through, and you see this person's just going through the motions. It's what marriages feel sometimes. It's when relationships, they're legal, we're married together, we share our assets, but there's no longer that, that flame or that spark or that passion to be together. I just assume be away from my wife is be with my wife. I just assume be away from my kids is be with my kids. It reveals the heart of a dad. And more than one time, I've had a husband or a wife or children come to me and say, you know, my parents say, my husband does, my wife does the right things, but somehow or another, I just don't feel love. Do you follow what I'm talking about? So holiness is not a matter of keeping rules. It means that we submit our lives and we submit our hearts to God. And in doing so, God does this wonderful work. He sets us apart to himself and begins each and every single day 
to make us more like Jesus. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for that today? He just every single day. So, I want you to look again at verses 18 and 19 because I think they're the key and it's the reason that I had you read that out loud with me. For you know God paid a ransom. Now, to pay a ransom means that we were enslaved to something. Because of our sin, because of Adam's sin, we were enslaved to the devil. We were enslaved to our sins. God paid a ransom. In other words, he paid a debt you and I couldn't pay to save you from the empty life. And that's an important phrase, empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver which lose their value. It was the precious blood of Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. So I would say again, holiness says to the Lord simply, Lord, use me. Well, let's look at what it is. Number one, a holy life is a thoughtful life. A holy life is a thoughtful life. In our English word, holiness, it comes from a word called wholeness. And so I'd like to use that as just an illustration tonight. Holiness means there's a complete integration between my thought life, my mind, and my heart. Between my thought life and my emotions. In other words, I'm not just keeping the rules in my head, but I love the one who gave me the principles on how to live for him. I'm not just observing the Ten Commandments in my head, but like Jesus said, I'm observing the spirit of the Ten Commandments. So when I speak about you, Tom, or when I speak about you, Bob, or Estel, I always speak, and you know your name is safe in my mouth, even if we have a disagreement, because the Bible says that to gossip about a brother is like committing a, the sin of murder. The book of Proverbs says to lie about a brother is like committing the sin of murder. So Jesus says, you know, but you hate, you're just guilty of murder. You know, Jesus says, you know, my heart has to be pure, that, I, that you know, I can't just say I've never committed adultery because if I look at a sister or, or any, even someone that's not a sister and I lust after them in my heart, then Jesus says I'm committing adultery. It's the, you, it's the holiness, it's the wholeness, it's the union of what goes on here and what goes on here. You may be spotless when it comes to not gossiping about anybody, but if you hate your brother, Jesus says you're committed the sin of murder. If you're lusting after someone, you're committing adultery in your heart. And of course, the outward consequences aren't as, as real in society, but they are real inside your heart, and eventually they become real in how you treat other people. It's like the sin of racism. Most people who don't believe in Christianity, I have found out, and I dear, dearly believe this, is they're thoughtless people. They're people who just don't think a whole lot. Because these are some of the comments that I get. These are some of the comments I have read that others have made. And they say, well, you know, Jesus is great for some people. Jesus is good for you. If Jesus is good for you, you know, I'm okay with that. But, you know, Jesus is not good. For, it's just not good for me. I, I'm not into religion. In other words, they tend to think about us. As somebody said to me, not long after I moved to Detroit, somebody said to me, he says, you know, the more I'm getting to know you, it seems like your religion is a crutch to you. And I looked at them, and I'll never forget this conversation. I said, my religion is not a crutch to me. My religion is my wheelchair. It's my gurney. It's my life, you know. It's everything. I am nothing without Jesus Christ, who's my Lord and Savior. 
And what they were trying to say to me is, you know, you've just kind of abandoned all thought. And occasionally I have been, somebody has said to me, you know, you seem like an intelligent person. How could you believe in the resurrection of the dead? How could you believe in the rapture? How could you believe that God still heals? In this age of science, how can you believe that? I believe in that tonight, friends, because I've looked at the evidence. And that's part of what holiness is all about. Look at verse 14. You must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. You didn't know any. Underline that phrase. You didn't know any better then. So sometimes I will say to a lost person, I'll say, What's the purpose of your life? If we're going to have this conversation, what's the purpose of your life? And that's a question that I think made Rick Warren's book such a bestseller. Years ago, before I moved to Michigan, I was pastoring in Georgia. That's where I went into district office, and I asked a man to spend an afternoon with me. I said, just spend an afternoon with me. Go with me, you know, you know just be with me while I do what I do as a pastor every day. And he goes, Why? I go, because I'd like to spend some time with you. He goes, why? Because I want to know what you're living for. I want to know what drives your life, what motivates your life. And he goes, why? (laughs) And those why questions are like a four-year-old question. It wasn't that his question was wrong. It was a logical question. If I ask you tonight, Dick, to spend the afternoon with me tomorrow, it would be a very logical question for you to say, Why, pastor? What's the purpose of our meeting? That's a very logical question. Now, friends don't always do that. We'll say, hey, let's get together for a cup of coffee. We don't need a reason to get together, right? We're just glad to be with one another and be in each other's. I don't need a reason to want to spend an evening alone with Becky. Hey, 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 that just sounds exciting right now. You know, I I don't need it. It's because we're in love. But when you ask a, a stranger or someone that's an acquaintance, would you spend an afternoon for me? And you say to them, what's your life for? What's it all about? And they say, well, you know, it's about my career. It's about my education. I go, well, what are you working for? Well, I'm working to provide a house. I'm working to put food on the table. I'm working to provide for my family. And I said, okay, great. You've got a good education. You've got a good career. You're putting food on the table. You've got a house for your family to live in. What's the purpose in all of that? And they go, what do you mean, what's the purpose? And I go, well, why are you doing all of that? You know, what makes you do what you do? And you will watch people, especially lost people, get agitated Because all of a sudden, you're asking them to, say it with me, think. You're asking them to think, to look at their life, to think about why they're doing what they're doing. And I need to really press on this a little bit tonight. Because the average person, their whole life is based on thoughtlessness. They give no real thought for why. They're putting the food on the table. Why? They're providing shelter. And when I begin to press this, they'll say to me, don't push your religion down my throat. Now, this, if you go through 401 with me, you'll get a little bit more of what I'm trying to tell you right here because this is where you know that you're really starting to make progress in the conversations. But you've got to give it time. And 
I'll say, I'm really not trying to push my religion down your throat. I'm just trying to find out what's the purpose of your life? What are you living for? What difference will it have made when your life is over? That's what I'm asking you. That's what I'm getting at. And boy, when the person engages that long with you, and you can put that question out there, what difference will it make? Then all of a sudden, your conversation really begins to turn. Because then I'll ask a question, well, what makes wrong from right? Now, you see, we're getting closer to what holiness is and what you and I need to think about. What makes wrong from right? And they go, well, you know, the majority make wrong from right. I go, okay, okay. Whenever we have an election, the majority rules, and that's the right thing to do. That's the democratic, that's the American way to do things. So I'll say, what's wrong? Well, racism is wrong. Okay, well, there have been whole countries, whole nations, where everyone knew, the majority knew, that genocide was being committed. People were being sent to gas. We have a nation today that's committing genocide against other people, you know, just trying to wipe them out. It took a long time for America to get remotely involved in, in Macedonia. It took a long time for us to get involved in World War II because sometimes the majority is not always right, especially in the last days as Jesus predicts, and this shouldn't frighten us, this should make us aware and alert of the power of a holy life as in the last days, and Peter will talk about that as we go further along in First and Second Peter, about life in the last days. It's not meant to frighten us, it's meant to make us bold because we have to make up our minds. What's right? And so you ask a lost person who's agitated, they don't want to have to think these thoughts, you go, well, if, if everybody can do what's right and everybody can do what's wrong, let me ask you another question. And I, I just jot some down here. I said, is torture wrong? And everybody goes, yes, torture's wrong. Torture's always wrong. I said, who said what makes Americans better than when our law said we can't torture anybody than other countries that torture somebody? What makes us better? Well, our values. Well, where do we get our values from? You're zeroing down more and more. I have asked this question before. On what basis do you say that a human being is more valuable than a tree, the planet, a rock? Because there are scientists today who believe that the best thing that could happen for the earth, because the earth is more valuable than the people on it, is for there to be another plague that would wipe out a significant number of the human population. There are a lot of people who believe that a baby dolphin is worth more than a preborn human being. I could just dig right on down with that because we're not thinking we are conforming to the culture around us. And that's what Peter was saying to these Christians, the old way of life that you inherited. You can't go back to that. So when the question finally gets around to me, and the first point is a little, is a little longer, so just kind of bear with me. When the question finally gets around to me or to you, and they say, well, why are you a Christian? 
And I love it when people ask, why did you give your heart to Jesus? And I go, hey, let me be totally honest with you. Let me be frank with you. I was raised in a Christian home. I've never questioned whether or not there was a God. I, I've never questioned whether or not God loved me. I, 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 you know, I had a lot of questions about God. I struggled with a lot of things. But I grew up in a Christian home. But there came a point where my faith had to become my own faith. And I, I tell them a story about how when I was in Bible college preparing for the ministry, I had a personal crisis of faith. And, and that crisis of faith is what made my ministry, I believe, today because it caused me to really get down and to search out and to dig out the truths of the Bible. And I, as I, more I researched and the more I, I dug in and discovered, I found out there was evidence, for instance, for the life of Jesus. There was genuine, real evidence for the life of Jesus Christ, that he lived, that he died for our sins, that he was resurrected, that he was seen by over 500 people at one time, that there is real his extra-biblical historical evidence and testimony for Jesus. And I decided that based upon all the evidence that I was able to accumulate and read, and then later on in life, there became a wonderful book out while I was still a youth pastor by Josh McDowell that said evidence that demands a verdict. You like that book, huh? Evidence that demands a verdict. And as I read that, then suddenly as a student at Valdosta State University, I was able to really dig in there with some other students and some Christian professors. And we looked at that, that book together. And this accumulated evidence has made me more persuaded than ever that Jesus Christ is the uncreated, eternal, co-existent Son of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He He's not three gods. He is one God outside of space and time. And the only way we can understand him is as Jesus has revealed him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Does that sound like a leap of faith to you? No. That's research. That's study. That's what you do when you come to church Sunday after Sunday, midweek after midweek, and you go to small group. It's what we do as Christians. It's why Peter wrote this epistle so the church would study it together. And what else I found out was this life that Jesus calls me to live, it fits my nature. And everybody that I know that loves Jesus, this life fits their nature as well. And everybody that I know that was a Hindu, that was a Mormon, that was a Muslim, that was an atheist, or that came from an animistic religion, once they come to the conviction that Jesus Christ is who he said he is, he is the Holy Son of God, and he died for their sins, they find out this new life fits their nature as well. The life that the world teaches never fits the created nature of human beings. The life the world teaches, and that's why holiness is so important. You see, when you hear somebody say Christians just make a great leap of faith, that's a bunch of, to use my word Sunday morning, that's a bunch of baloney. Christians don't make a leap of, if you want to know who makes the leap of faith, the leap of faith is people who do not give any thought to why they're living and how they're living and knowing they're going to die one day, and then what's the purpose and the meaning of their life. You see, when you get up and you live without God and you ignore God, when you get up every single day and you go to work and you pay a mortgage payment and you pay taxes payment and you put groceries on the table and you bring children into this world, I tell young people all the time when I'm doing premarital counseling, I says, have children. I can't tell you how many times, Pastor, the world's getting, I'm going to talk about this Sunday morning, the world's getting worse and worse. Why would I bring children to this world? Because we are not going to be overcome, we are going to be overcomers. 
That's what it means to live a holy life. You see, there is no conflict between faith and knowledge. What I have just described to you in holiness, what Paul is saying about our lives is get knowledge. Get knowledge. You can't make good decisions for your life with chemistry and physics. You got to have some knowledge. You got to have some common sense. And you see, with that knowledge, you get out and you get experience in life. Well, I got to keep going. I could go on and on about this. Number two, a holy life is an examined life. A holy life is an examined life. Again, I want to look at this, this, this whole idea of the empty way of life and then look at this new life you have. In verse 18, let's read it together again. You know that God paid a ransom to save you. Let's read it together. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And it was not paid with mere gold or silver, which lose their values. Now, that's quite a statement to make. Because in all honesty, look at me, don't miss this. In all honesty, that's what's being said to everybody outside the body of Christ. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, then your way of life is an empty way of life. If your children reject Christ, they have chosen an empty life. If you live your life without Jesus, you've chosen a life of emptiness. And maybe that's why the rise of suicide has been so extremely high. Maybe that's why the rise of violence in the workplace and on campuses and at country music concerts and in churches has become so abysmally high. It's because of this empty way of life. The news blasts us every single day with something that mocks or ridicules our faith. The Hollywood culture blasts us every single day with something that ridicules our faith. Recently, somebody recommended a television show for Becky and I to watch and says, you'll enjoy this. There's no profanity in it, anything. But what we've noticed in this particular show, and it's not, it's a well-made show, it's great drama, but what we've noticed in this particular television show is that everything but Christianity has been made, has has, has been shown in a glowing light. Christianity has been shown in a negative light. And even though there's been no swearing or cursing or any skin scenes or anything like that in the, in the, in the television show, what you've seen is idolatry. What you've seen is a celebration of, 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 of abortion and gay rights. And you've seen an attack on politics that are, unless they go a certain way, and I don't want to get too far into that, but what I'm saying tonight is there's a constant blast of things that you and I hold dear in the society and the culture around us. One of the reasons that when I first came to Woodland, and Rick, you'll remember this, one of the things we talked about was, you know, I wanted to see our kids, you know, in schools and being a part of the schools and being salt and light in the schools. But more and more, it looks like the culture is trying to push Christianity out and do to Christians culturally what the Germans did to Jewish people and push them into a ghetto. Because we find ourselves sometimes being alarmed when a school board doesn't want to let us know what's going on or has a meeting in secret. And I, I find these things and I read these things happening and I say, something's wrong. 
There is a spiritual warfare that's going on. And we may have to make some difficult choices as overcomers and as Christians. But the thing that we have to realize is that every single day we need to remember what it is we have been ransomed with. We have not been ransomed with silver. We have not been ransomed with gold. We have been ransomed with the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is fundamentally important to remember. You see, as a Christian, it doesn't matter if I'm a southerner or a northerner, what matters is, is it biblical? Now, this time of the year, I miss lots and lots of boiled peanuts. I have some in the basement, and I eat them while I'm watching Georgia football with sweet tea, and I miss that whole lifestyle down there. I miss being able to stop by, we called him the peanut man, where he had his truck and his big old black kettle out there boiling peanuts and just passing the time with him. There's a lot of things that I miss. There's a lot of things that I love about our new life in the north and, and what we've learned and discovered up here. The question, though, is not am I a southerner or am I a northerner. The question is, is it biblical? Now, here's where I'm going with that. My dad one time told me, he says, son, don't worry about your temper. He says, we're Scotch-Irish, and you know the Irish and the Scots. They're hot-tempered. He said, my mama was hot-tempered. It's just passed down. Friends, it doesn't matter if you're Italian or if you're Scotch-Irish. You know, the question is, is it biblical? It doesn't matter if you're black or if you're white. The question is, is it biblical? It doesn't matter if you're from the northern hemisphere or the southern hemisphere. The question is, is it biblical? You can't say this is the way my family was because Jesus Christ is our Lord. And a thoughtful life doesn't appeal to a northern life or a southern life or an Italian life or a Scotch-Irish life. We appeal to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so when, as a Christian, what what Peter is saying here is, is that we are living, you've got to examine, are we living submitted to Christ? The Bible is our authority. It's the Word of God that is the authority in our life. And then finally, if you'll put those up there for me, it's why I'm making a bold statement tonight. And that is, it's only the Christian life that is an original life. Because as a Christian, you will never know who you are and what the purpose of your life is. Excuse me, as a human being, you will never know the purpose of your life and who you are and what you were created for until you commit your life to Jesus Christ. I don't know who said it. I found several different quotes for it, but his favorite quote that I've kept over the years said, I never knew I was a bell until God picked me up and rang me. You don't know what you are. You can take all the personality tests, Enneagram tests, you can get all the Myers-Briggs tests that you want, but until you commit your life to Jesus Christ, you don't know who you are or what you are because you are not the product of somebody's imagination talking about evolution. You are created in the image of God. God didn't shed his blood to save monkeys. God shed his blood to save human beings. And that's an important distinction to make. It wasn't monkeys that sinned against God. Get it? Good. And that's why holiness is a life of wholeness. So what I would say here is I would be sure that 
you know, I was daily reading my Bible. I would be sure I was daily praying. I would be sure I was daily meditating on what God's Word said, try to write a little life application statement for it. I would be sure I was daily journaling and writing down what was going on in my life, what I felt God saying to me in my Scripture time, who I prayed for that day. I would take time every, uh, every quarter just to fast for a day and to seek the Lord for His direction because if not, Christians can be just as guilty as atheists of living like God doesn't really matter. We do the right things and say the right things, but we don't seek God's direction for our life. And some things, I told you for the last two Sundays in a row, I believe God is calling Woodland to a deeper foundation of prayer for a release of His Spirit and what He wants to do here. I would say to you that I would learn how to share my faith. I would learn uh, how to get out and build relationships with lost people. If you want to live a holy life, I would get out intentionally and learn these things. And then finally tonight... A holy life is lived freely under the authority of God. A holy life is lived freely under the authority of God. Now this is the most important point of everything I've told you because if not, you could be under the same mistaken notion that I was growing up in my early Christian life. As a matter of fact, I would say I had been in the ministry quite a while before I fully discovered what grace was all about. Because there was such a conflict of the paradigm I'd grown up in. When Becky and I were dating at Southeastern College, which is now Southeastern Bible College, which is now Southeastern University, there was so many rules. I got in trouble for breaking rules that I didn't know existed. Years later, when I was asked to serve on the board of the school, I had so much fun with that. When Becky and I were dating, we couldn't hold hands. You know, you just could sit and talk to each other. You couldn't walk across campus and hold hands, you know. How dare you even think about kissing her. Now, don't ask me if I ever broke those rules because I was supposed to report them if I did. But the fact of the matter is, there were all these rules, and there was always somebody watching. I discovered, before Becky came to school, I discovered this the hard way. I got turned in sometime, one time, because somebody saw me breaking a rule that I didn't know I had broken. And so in the middle of a prayer meeting one night, the dean of men comes and pulls me out, and he says, Dennis, you almost got kicked out of college today. I said, do what? And he knew my parents well, and I says, how? He goes, well, you broke a rule. And I go, I didn't know. He told me the rule. I said, I didn't know that was against the rules. And he gave me a lecture, and he said, I stood up for you. That's why you're not being kicked out of college, but your parents are being notified that you broke the rule. I got a phone call from my mom. You don't get a phone call in college from your mom and dad chewing you out for breaking a rule, you know. I didn't know I broke the rule. It's happened again. I broke a rule that I didn't know was there. And you said, why didn't you read your student handbook? Because it was thicker than the Old Testament. That's why I didn't read the student handbook. And so I was in chapel one day, and then, you know, somebody stood up and rebuked me in front of the whole chapel. I had broke a rule. They didn't come to me and tell me I broke a rule. I broke a rule. Do you understand a little bit why I struggled with some of this? And it grieved me because I wanted to be a man of God. I wanted to live a holy life. Friends, there was no freedom like that. When you have been born again, you're a child of God. There is freedom finally. You're not free in sin. You are free in Christ. Can we give him a hand of praise for that tonight? So let's look at this tonight because I think this is a real important point. If you'll put up the, um, 
the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I know you studied this when you were in college or maybe in high school. Peter uses an interesting word that I want to kind of talk about. He talks about our desires. And God created us with desires. There's nothing wrong with desires. If you can't get it, don't worry about it. I can just kind of walk through it. He says, your own desires, God created us with desires. And if you remember Maslow's basic needs and, you know, number one, you've got the, the bottom basis, physiological needs. You have the need for food and safety and, and rest and sleep. Those are things God created you for. They're good things. God rested himself. And then as you work up, you've got the needs for security. You've got the needs for resources, health and property. Then you go up for love and belonging. That's friend, family and friends. And then esteem for your status and recognition. And then finally, uh, what Maslow called self-actualization. There's nothing wrong with any of those needs. You need to be loved. You need to be rested. The only way you find self-actualization is to find that in Christ. That's the only, the only way you find real security is to find that in Christ. If you die with all of the money and resources in this world and you die without Christ, you have died insecurely. I, I, you know, I, I could just be very dramatic with that, but very true with that. What gave Becky and I peace when Andrew was, was in war was we knew his relationship with Christ when the bullets were flying at him. And when those of you that were Christians who served in war, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And yet, there's a part of us we need to feel like we've accomplished. I want to feel like my life has mattered. And I believe I'm speaking to some of you tonight. You want to feel like when your time comes and either I preach your funeral or somebody else preaches your funeral, that your life mattered, that it had reason and being, not that you just left your DNA somewhere in the world. You need to know these are needs God gave to us because people who raise kids without giving them the faith and showing them about Jesus, they're jeopardizing their entire eternal security. It's why I made the statement two weeks ago, you cannot expect to lay out of church and come to church one time a month and to raise children that are going to be passionate followers of Christ when your boat or your cabin or everything else is more important to you on Sunday than the simple command of God, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together even more as you see the day approaching. We model these things to our children. So if God invented all of these needs, what is Peter saying? I want to take you to Thomas Oden, a Methodist theologian. Thomas Oden said, you can either make God your central value, which is an infinite center, or you can put something finite in the way, something finite in the center. And when that happens, to the degree that I center my life on a finite value instead of God, to that degree I relate to my past with guilt and to my future with anxiety. Money's got nothing to do with your guilt. Money's got nothing to do with your eternal future. Fame has got nothing to do with your guilt. Fame has got nothing to do with your eternal future. Education cannot solve your guilt, and education cannot solve your eternal future. Odin goes on in this article to say that we make idols out of these things. He uses the illustration, he says, God gave me a daughter. He said, but to the extent that I love God more than my daughter, 
then I live a holy life. But he says, if I suddenly begin to love my daughter more than I love God, then I have taken something God, good God has given me, my daughter, and I have made an idol out of her. And in making an idol of her, I jeopardize my future and her future as well. Does that make sense? So what he wants to get at here, let's go to verse 13. So prepare your minds for action. We talked about the battle for your mind last week. And exercise self-control and put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you. Pastor, aren't I saved already? Yes, you are saved. But you're being saved tonight from the power of sin at this world. And when Jesus comes again, you will be finally saved. You get it? Uh, There's more coming, and it gets better and better and better. So put all your hope in the grace of salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. And that's a really, I can't find an English translation with the same quality of translation that the Greek language brings out. You see that phrase, your old ways of living, it doesn't mean evil desires, as I think King James puts it, and maybe a couple of other translations do. It means inordinate desires, excessive desires. It's when somebody tells me, I know that God says this is not right. Recreation is good, but you don't put recreation before God. That's an excessive desire. Sex is good, but you don't put sex before God. Food is good, but you don't become, what's the word for it? Biblical word for it? A glutton. Because food is good, but gluttony is an inordinate desire. It's also something God hates. Do you follow what I'm saying? If the the image of Maslow's needs had come up, you could look at those. Those are God-given desires. But for them to be holy, you can't slip back into the world's way of thinking because the world's way of thinking says, I built bigger barns, I have more than enough, take my rest, be at ease. A Christian's way of thinking is, Lord, use me. To the very end of my days, use me. If I can't lift a hammer anymore, if I can't drive anymore, then Father, use me in intercession, use me in praise, and use me in worship. And if my mind fails me, may the breath I live and the life I've lived, may it bring glory and honor until you call my spirit home to you. That's what holiness says. It says, use me. That's how you understand without being thrown off by 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 15. Now, put your name there, Dennis. You must be holy in everything you do. You must say, Jesus, Dennis, say, Jesus, use me in everything you do. Hines, you say, Jesus, use me for your glory and honor. Vic, you say, Jesus, use me. And everything I say, everything I think, everything I do, Lord, use me for your glory and honor. Just as God who chose you is holy. In other words, you have been taken out look here you've been taken out of what's going to be destroyed and you have been saved for the purposes of God 
Make sense? So let me give you three little closing points here. To be holy means to say, God, use me. That's called obedience. That's called obedience. To be holy says what Jesus said, not my will, but thy will be done. But here's the clincher, and this is why I think it's so good. To be holy means that I have been adopted. Because you can't obey, you can't obey and live this kind of life as a slave. Slaves do it here, not here. The reason so many southern slave owners would spend more money to find a slave than what the slave was physically worth was because they were afraid of slave uprisings. The reason so many slaves ran away is because they got tired of submitting to a whip and to the rules. Something in them drove them for freedom. So many of those songs that we sing sometimes as old Negro spirituals, they were slave songs. It's the reason that some plantation owners would not allow Christians onto their plantations because they didn't want the slaves to hear the gospel. It's the same thing you see happening in other parts of the world. I was speaking at the University of Georgia right after Tiananmen Square. I sat with a Chinese professor who wept. And he says, those are your brothers and sisters in Christ. You see, an employee can obey a rule but never feel like he's part of the family. To be holy means you've been adopted. You've been called out. You've been taken out. You belong to God. And you obey because you trust a father that you know loves you so much that he redeemed you not with things that lose their value, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? And the battle today is to get you to be a thoughtless Christian rather than a thoughtful Christian. If we'll understand, we will live as God's obedient children. Stand with me tonight. I've gone a little longer than I'm supposed to on Wednesday night, but I want to pray for us before we go home. I love you so much, my precious Lord. God, I stand here tonight with my family in Christ. I stand here with people that are my brothers and sisters. I stand here tonight with folks, Lord, we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray this message will free us tonight and raise our awareness of who we are. You are my crutch. You are my gurney. You are, Lord, my ambulance. You are my everything. I cannot live without you, Lord. Jesus, if you were not there, everything would even cease to exist. 
God, I'm a Christian tonight, not because I've let, just leapt into emotionalism. I'm a Christian tonight because at a certain point in history, you sent Jesus Christ into this world. And he died for our sins. He was resurrected again on the third day and he ascended back to the Father. And one day soon, you shall come again for a church without spot or wrinkle. I thank you for these amazing gifts. For it's in Christ's name I pray. And everyone said, amen and amen. God bless you. I love you. Consider yourselves dismissed.